Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 375 of them now, and um, if you have not seen these before, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu, and you'll find them all organized in about five different ways. This show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, and so if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there's a PayPal link on every page of the site. My guest today is Regina Dawn Akers, and um, I've kind of known Regina for quite a few years now, probably five or six years we've been peripherally in touch, uh, <laughs> uh, but I've never really spoken to her directly, and um, I've had like a couple of her books on my in my iTunes collection to listen to, but I've never gotten around to listen to them in, until the last week, and I started doing so and really enjoyed them. Um, so I'm going to start by just reading uh, the bio that Regina sent me, and then we'll get into it in much more detail. Uh, Regina has been sharing spiritual teachings, organizing retreats, and leading pilgrimages to holy sites in Israel and India since 2005. She's published two books, The Holy Spirit's Interpretation of the New Testament, NTI for short, and The Teachings of Inner Ramana. Her third book, Thoughts of Awakening, 365 Thoughts for Daily Contemplation, is provided as a free ebook. Each of these books came to Regina from within through her willingness to be their scribe, student, and teacher. She is a living model of their teachings and a clear channel of the deeper meaning that lies hidden beyond the written word. Regina shares insightful and consistent clarity using a variety of spiritual teachings as pointers. She is the founder of Awakening Together, a, world lot, a worldwide online spiritual assembly dedicated to helping people become self-reliant with inner spiritual wisdom. Awakening Together uses the teachings of many spiritual traditions to point toward one truth, one true self, which lies peacefully within each of us. Regina is the author of Awakening Together's two-year minister preparation program, which is a contempl uh, contemplative study of truth through teachings from Hinduism, Buddhism, Sufism, Kabbalah, and the Tao Te Ching, of course in Miracles and the New Testament, and contemporary masters including Ramana Maharshi and the Sargadatta Maharaj. When she is not traveling, Regina lives a quiet life in Pueblo, Colorado. She enjoys spending time with her family, her dog, and a few close friends. Many of Regina's teachings are available freely online at reginadawnacres.com. She also invites everyone to enjoy the inspiration and online spiritual community provided through awakening-together.org. So, welcome, Regina. Thank you. Welcome. I mean, thank you. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I read that whole thing, even though people could read it on the website, because some people just listen to this as an audio, and they may not have even looked at the website, and so it gives them a, an overview of who you are. So, I've listened to some, a couple of interviews with you, and I've heard your story of how you stumbled upon, into all this, but um, no one else has, probably, who's listening to this. So, let's, let's go through it chronologically. I mean, you have an interesting story, and I think it, a lot of information will come out as you, as you recount it. All right. Okay, so you, you grew up in a, in a, Christ, a rather con conservative Christian family, was it? Well, or um, maybe a, a disinterested Christian family. And yeah, you, you started. Christian. Yeah, you started going to church, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a Christian culture. I, I was raised in Kansas. Okay. So um, you know, I, I don't know 
you know, I think Kansas is just about as... as uh, it's the buckle of the Bible belt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's as Midwestern as you get, let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Uh, I guess the story starts when I was around 11. I don't remember exactly what age, but I think 11. And for some reason, I wanted to get to know God. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, the only way that I could do it that I knew of at the time was just to walk to the nearest church, which was about two blocks away. And I started attending. It was a Southern Baptist church. And um, at first, I really liked it. I was saved and I was baptized, and that felt really good. And then it wore off, and so I got saved and baptized again. <laughs> and I got in trouble. I was told I couldn't do this a third time. <laughs> um, but at some point, I was thir- around 13, and I was um, in seventh grade, and we were having our first school dance, and I wanted to go to this school dance. And the preacher told me that it was a sin to dance. Mm. And uh, I asked him to show me that in the Bible. And, and, you know, I've always been very sincere. And so if, if, at that time, I thought the Bible was the word of God. So if he, he had been able to show me that it was a sin, I wouldn't have gone to the dance. But he couldn't show me. And so even as a young kid, I thought, this guy's just making stuff up. <laughs> and, uh, and I left and I left. Um, so my next religious experience was my parents got a divorce and my father remarried a, a woman. And shortly after they got remarried she became one of jehovah's witnesses and i think just out of a desire to be part of the family um, i started going to the kingdom hall and studying with jehovah's witnesses but based on my experience with this baptist preacher i really liked them for two reasons one they could show me everything in the bible that they said and two they didn't believe in a hell which was a step up i thought did they believe in dancing (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was okay to dance. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no holidays, but you could dance. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> dance every day. Yeah. Um, but at some point, I think when I was around 15 or 16, um, first I got to tell you a little, about, a little bit about my dad. My dad is this really good guy. In fact, if you um, think of Andy Taylor, uh, Sheriff Andy Taylor, do you remember him? From that the Andy, Car- Griff- Andy Griffiths show? Yeah, 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 that's that's my dad, you know, uh-huh. except he was a J.C. Penney manager. But he's just this really good, good guy. Mm. And you, ne- you, you were Opie, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I suppose so. Um, but he never, he never took to being one of Jehovah's Witnesses, even though his wife and his four stepdaughters did and I did. He never took to it. Mm-hmm. And the Witnesses, um, even though they don't believe in hell, they do believe in Armageddon. Mm. And they believe that, you know, uh, I guess Jesus is going to return and God is going to really severely punish all of the unbelievers, the unbelievers being people that aren't Jehovah's Witnesses. And I remember reading things like the birds plucking the eyeballs out of the people and just this horrible, horrible stuff. And I thought, you know, I looked at my dad, who's just this really good guy. And I thought, you know, I'm more loving than that. I would not do that to him just because he doesn't believe something. And God has got to be more loving than me. So that caused me to to walk away from that spirituality as well. You know, there's and, two interesting points here which we could talk about for a minute. Okay. Um, one is believing stuff. It's yeah. like, you know, I mean, I've 
I've thought about this in various ways over the years, but the, the best way I can look at it now is everything is a working hypothesis. Everything is something you can investigate, and maybe some hypotheses are more credible than others, like it's probably more likely that the moon is made of rock than it's made of green cheese. But if somebody <laughs> wants to say it's made of green cheese, fine, let's investigate that, you know? So that's point number one. And point number two is this, what I regard as a sort of a fear-based, egotistical thing about thinking that my way is the only way, or my way is the best way. And it's like this insecurity, actually, um, that, that reveals itself in that attitude. Anyway, why don't you comment on both of those things? Well, I, I, you sound like me, Rick. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've listened to any of my teachings, but um, have, you yeah. sound... Yeah, that's exactly, you know, that's exactly how I feel. I feel that, first of all, believing is a, a huge block to realizing what's true. And that in order to realize what's true, first we have to uncover and remove our beliefs. And um, I don't know if I sent you recently a, a very recent teaching of I mine where, that, you know, I'm going even deeper and deeper and deeper into that, uh, letting go of everything that I believe because um, I really just feel beliefs are, are, are the obstacle. So I am letting go of everything, and I am just being present with what is being. I have a very, very strong intuition, mm -hmm. um, and so I have something that I can pay attention to so I don't feel like I'm hanging out there with nothing. But I'm leaving the thinking mind behind and all of its beliefs and all of its p opinions. And, uh, yeah, and then as far as there's only one way, um, you know, awakening together is all about the fact, you know, if, if we look at just the planet Earth, for example, um, and don't imagine any planets other than this with people on it, because we don't know that for sure, at least I don't. So if we look at just the planet Earth with seven and a half billion souls, um, I feel there's probably seven and a half billion different awakenings then. Yeah. Uh, there's not, there's not any two that are exactly alike. There are certainly things that we can glean from each other and learn from each other and, and point. But, um, yeah, there's no such thing as one way. And I do feel a lot of teachers make a mistake in that they think that their way is the way. And, <laughs> and that's just a little error, I think. Yeah. I've been reading a book called Reason and Wonder by a guy named Dave Pruitt. And um, he's, he's sort of, at this point in the book, he's tracing the history of the tussle between science and religion over the position of the earth relative to the other planets and the sun and so on and it was you know they burned people at the stake for believing that uh, the earth was not the center of the universe and that there might actually be other planets in the universe that other beings live on because this was seen as such a threat to the primacy of the church and the primacy of, of hu human life and so on um, and I mean it's it's sort of a ref actually I haven't talked to one recently, but whenever I've been confronted by f fundamentalists, I, I tend to start talking astronomy with them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it shuts them up pretty quick. <laughs> I'm not capable of doing that. <laughs> well, you know, you just start giving them a sense of the size of the universe and, and uh, the probability of, of the universe being teeming with life, you know, and, and you know, the, the speed of light and how, how huge it is and how ancient it is and so on. Um, it's, it's a good way of expanding people's perspectives, I think. Um. Well, and, and I, I think that the reason people like to think that my way is the way uh, is, again, that holds on to me. I mean, there has to be a me to have a my way. So yeah. it's just another defense mechanism. Yeah. And it's also, you know, this attitude that, well, my way is the best way because <laughs> I'm doing it. 
If, yeah. if, if there was something better, I'd be doing that. But obviously, I'm doing this, so it must be the best. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I guess we've beaten that point to death. Um, back to the story, you think? Yeah. Go ahead. Back to the story. Back to the story. All right. So the next step in the story is a long ways away. Um, you know, I took time off to party and travel around the world and start a career and, and lots of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the next step is probably when I was around 28 years old. And I don't even know why this happened, but all of a sudden I just had this burning desire to know what the truth is. But at that time, I still had a belief uh, that the Bible was the word of God. And I thought that the truth would be the correct interpretation of the Bible. So I bought this lovely book called Religions in America. And um, what's great about it is it goes to the leaders of each of the respective churches and it interviews them about their beliefs. So you're getting it right from the horse's mouth. <laughs> and I also got like seven different translations of the Bible because, you know, if you look at different translations, they aren't the same either. And I started this huge research project where I was studying every every major religion in America, every major Christian religion, I should say, every denomination, to find the right one. And the only thing that study did was show me that at some point, in order to uphold their beliefs, somebody had to ignore something in the Bible, or they had to twist something, you know, in all sorts of different ways. And it just kind of left me with um, none of them are the truth. And I don't remember if I felt like that was a failure or not. I think I might have because I think I gave up the search for a while. But now that I look back on it, that was a huge step forward because I had to remove that obstacle that the Bible was the word of God and it's the truth and, you know, and, and that whole thing. And, and that's, of course, what happened. Um, and then. And if you got into a little biblical history, you know, reading Elaine Pagels and all that stuff, you probably realize that what we now have as the Bible is really a hodgepodge, you know, of, yeah. that was collected together and edited every which way over the years. And uh, who yeah. knows what, if you took all the original texts and even the non-text, because a lot of stuff wasn't even written down for a couple of hundred years. But <laughs> if, you, you could, if you could have been there as a scribe and gotten it all, who knows what we'd have compared to what we have. Yeah, that would be, that would be fun to be the scribe of the yeah. Bible. <laughs> yeah. Of course, in a way, I got my own chance at that, and we'll talk about that. Right, right. <laughs> um, so I think the next step was probably a few years after that. I saw Marianne Williamson mm -hmm. on Oprah. Whom I'm going to interview in about a month. Yeah. Oh, you are? Okay, yeah. well, she was talking about her book, A Return to Love. I think this was around the time that book had come out. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, know, you know how you get that inner, that inner feeling that, oh, there's something here. So that's what I, I got. And so I bought that book, and I read that book a couple of times and just ate it up. And then I wanted to go to the source material. She was talking about another book called A Course in Miracles, and I considered that the source material. So I went to that, and um, I gave that a try, but it didn't really take. First of all, I, I couldn't understand the words very well. Even though they were English words, it was Greek to me. And there's a workbook for people who don't know with the course with 365 lessons in it. And I started the workbook, and at first it's pretty easy. You do something for a minute in the morning and a minute in the evening. But at some point, uh, you know, the course is asking you to re remember something every hour or every half hour, or even every 15 minutes. And mm -hmm. my feeling was, you know, and Jesus is, is the supposed author of the course. So my feeling was, you know, doesn't Jesus know I have a job? <laughs> <laughs> They probably have apps for that now, you know, that pop up on your phone every 15 minutes. 
so I so I quit. Um, I quit. But another another book came a, around came to me around that same time when I was trying to understand the course. Um, and that's a much simpler book. It's called Peace Pilgrim. Oh yeah. Her life, yeah, her life and works in her own words. That, that's and a great that, book. Yeah, it's a great book, and she's a very genuine person. At least that's how it hit me. That was my perception. Very genuine. So um, I trusted her. Mm-hmm. And she spoke about this thing called oneness, uh, which was very alien to my experience, as you know. I mean, you know how, how we experience. This is me, and that's you, <laughs> you know, and all of that. Um, But because I trusted her, instead of just closing my mind to it, there was like this open curiosity that was something like, how could that be? You know, how could it be that we're one? And I was walking into work one day, and and this was my first mystical experience. I had this vision, um, and it was a vision of an infinite light. But the light, one portion of the light was covered with, can you see my hand? Yes. One portion of the light was covered with these black polka dots. And, you know, they were all just right next to each other like this. And so where the black polka dots were, the the light was blocked. Hmm. You couldn't see the light. But some of those black polka dots were beginning to fade. Hmm. And the ones that were beginning to fade, you could see some light shining through them. Mm -hmm. And then there were also some spaces where the polka dots had completely faded out and you could see the light completely. And um, even though I didn't have any of the words then to put to that, I understood intuitively that the black polka dots represented the individual self or the belief in the person. And I knew that when that faded, whatever that was, that when that faded, that the true self shined through and it was at the level of the true self that we were really one. Mm -hmm. Um, So I understood that. But then again, the next step doesn't come for like seven or nine years um, because what I did was I adopted my daughter from China. I started getting promoted at work. So again, I became very, very busy. And I had set lots of interesting goals for myself when I was really young, around 19, primarily because I thought that I was the the scum of the earth, the most unworthy soul here. Uh-huh. And I thought that if I achieve all this stuff, then I'll be as good as you guys. <laughs> right? So that was my method of, of becoming as good as you. And um, and when I was around 44, I'd done it all. Um, you could say I was sitting on top of my own little hill. And it wasn't that I noticed myself as unhappy or, or some people really perceive themselves of having suffered a lot. I didn't perceive myself that way. But there was just kind of this now what, you know, now what? And when I started asking now what, I remembered that blue book, A Course in Miracles, that I had stuck in a drawer many years ago. And um, and the feeling was to pull that out and begin reading that again. And the course is divided in three sections. There's a text, which is quite large. Uh, the workbook for students, which, as I mentioned, is 365 lessons. And then there's this little bitty manual for teachers in the back. <laughs> and so... I didn't want to make this huge commitment, so I just started to start with the manual for teachers. What was really interesting was, first of all, it wasn't Greek anymore. Something had shifted in my mind in that seven to nine year period where now it was like reading a novel. I understood it easily as I read it. Uh, And two, it felt like it was speaking directly to me. Now, at that point, I never had any idea at all that I would ever be a spiritual teacher. So when I say it was speaking directly to me, I don't mean that I thought it was asking me to be a spiritual teacher. 
I thought that it was um, asking me to be a teacher through beingness, through um, embracing this and living this in my normal everyday life 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought it was asking me to do. And so I agreed. And we were going on a vacation soon, and I did have a very busy life, so I thought it would be easier to start it on vacation when things are a little slower. So I took the course with me. We went on a Disney cruise. My daughter was, I think, six at the time. And I got up the first morning on the cruise, and I was going to start the workbook and start the text. And, you know, just because uh, I was starting something holy, you know, a new holy commitment, I thought that I would say a prayer. And I don't really remember what I was praying, <laughs> but during the prayer, uh, it's literally like something came down over me. Uh, it kind of reminds me of a literally a, a Moses burning bush type of moment, even though I didn't see a burning bush. But you know, something came down over me, and I was just overcome with this desire to surrender the rest of my life. And I, I said, um, I will learn whatever you want me to learn. I will do whatever you want me to do. Just make me useful for the rest of my life. I love that. Yeah, and and what I didn't fully realize then was my whole life changed in that moment. Mm. First of all, again, I was reading the course now and doing the workbook lessons, and it was easy. Uh, and you know, I hear a lot of people who have done A Course in Miracles workbook say, you know, they know they didn't do it right. They only did so many lessons. They, you know, they would if it said remember something every hour, they wouldn't. And, you know, all of that. I did. Uh, you know, that is that's a miracle. I mean, something, you know, something was causing me to remember. And I had a, a full time job. I was a, a director of a department in a national company. I went to back to back meetings and, and none of that got in my way. Um, and I can't explain it. It's just the way it was. Um, after about two months, or maybe more than two, from April to July, so in early July, um, one morning I was reading a lesson. I think it was around Lesson 77 or so. Um, the name of the lesson is I Am Entitled to Miracles. And I was reading that lesson, and, and something in that lesson caused me to see how unworthy I thought I was. And also to realize that if I held on to that, that I would never experience what at that time I would have called the Holy Spirit. I would never experience, let's put it this way, something beyond me, the person. So I made a very firm decision in that moment that I had to let that go. I had to believe I was entitled to miracles and I had to do it right now. And, um, and I closed my eyes and the instant I closed my eyes, I had... This would have been my second vision now, but the first one had been many years before. And I saw myself as a little girl. Uh, I was standing in a room that was very lit up. It had no furniture or anything, but the door was open. You know, so like here's the wall and here's the, the door and there's this crack in between. And see how that crack is shadow shadowed? Yeah. Uh -huh. I was standing in that shadow mm. and I thought I was in the dark. Mm -hmm. And so what I saw in the vision was that I thought I was in the dark, but actually there was light everywhere. And I only just had to come out just a little bit. And then this hand came in and lingered. And like I knew that all I had to do is grab a hold of that finger and it would actually pull me out. Mm -hmm. So that was my first, my, well, my first vision in many years. Um, my first vision with the course. Later that day, I was, my boyfriend was driving my daughter and me to the airport. We were going to Myrtle Beach for the 4th of July. 
and um, and I had an experience. I don't quite know what it was. You might. Um, it was an energy. It started. This energy started, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger. I mean, I was just sitting in the car, and we were listening to Disney music, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until I thought that I would explode, and then it kind of, kind of, you know, let me go. <laughs> you know, and I settled back down. Sounds like but a Kundalini thing. Yeah, that's that's what that's what I suspect, but I don't know enough about Kundalini to say that for sure. But that's what I suspect. Next week, I'll be interviewing a guy all about Kundalini. We'll be talking about that a lot. Oh, I'll have to listen to that yeah. then. Yeah, yeah, I suspect it was something like that because after that's when things really start rolling. Mm -hmm. You know, after that, I start having lots of visions, um, and I'm not going to go through what all of those visions were. That would just take too long. But there were many, many useful visions. Uh, and maybe one or two will come up, depending on what else we talk about. But in, around November, um, let me just interject a point here. Do you, do you feel it'd be useful to say, or do you feel it'd be true to say, that um, not everybody is wired to have visions? Uh, yeah, some absolutely. people are wired in different ways. Because if you say, if if we place visions as sort of the criteria criterion of spiritual awakening or something, then people who don't have them feel like they're scum of the earth, like you were saying earlier. You know, the, the, you know oh God, I never have visions, nothing ever happens to me, I must be really uninvolved. So you just have to sort of, the people are wired in different ways and it results in very different types of awakenings and different types of experiences. Well, and in fact, I would uh, say, even though the visions happen to me, and I mean this genuinely and sincerely, those types of experiences are absolutely unnecessary. Right. And um, for people who are seeking them, it is probably uh, a distraction. Mm. And I would, I would recommend letting go of that and looking for something more genuine, and maybe we'll get into talking about sure. some things yeah. more genuine. You know, I don't think that you can um, make a vision happen. Yeah. You know, it, it either happens or it doesn't, and overall it's irrelevant. Ultimately, it has nothing to do with truth. Uh, you know, there's another teaching I share, which I, I, I don't want to go all the way into right now. It's a pretty big teaching, but in that teaching, uh, I show, you know, illusion kind of as a box, you know, or the untrue kind of as a box. And within that box are many, 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 many things. And one of those things would be things like visions. Uh, they can point to truth. And in my case, they did, but they are not the truth. Therefore, they're not necessary. Yeah. And, you know, to quote Mick Jagger, people are paraphrasing, people kind of get what they need, you know. So, so maybe sometimes, maybe some people need visions, and so they're going to have them, and others don't need them, and, and so on. Uh, and like you say, I mean, most of the, um, there's all kinds of great scriptural accounts in various traditions about people having visions, like, Saul on the road to Damascus and so on and in general they weren't seeking them they just got zapped yeah yeah well that's what happened to me I mean, I mean that's I wasn't seeking them yeah uh, yeah in fact you know being this girl from Kansas <laughs> the idea of them is ridiculous yeah you know if you go back to, to that girl you know uh, you know anybody who's having visions must be you know a little crazy mm. so uh, yeah <laughs> In fact, that leads right into my next story very well. Good. Um, in early November, I had a vision, which I am going to describe, uh, while doing a, a course lesson. Um, and the vision was that I was in this deep, dark cavern. And it was, you know, so dark that, of course, you know, you couldn't see anything. That's your hand in front of your face, nothing. It was completely black. 
But intuitively, I knew there were a lot of people in that cavern with me. Also intuitively, I knew there were many ways to, to get out of the cavern, several different exits, but nobody could find them because it was so dark. And I was standing there with a with an armful mm-hmm. <laughs> of lit candles, and people would come up to me, and I would take a candle and hand it to them, and then they would use the candle to, to find their own way out. Um, and when that vision ended, I knew that that was some kind of a calling. And I didn't want my mind to get involved with trying to figure it out. So I did something that day that I, again, I can't explain why I did it because I'd never done anything like this before or even thought about doing anything like this. But I went to the computer and I said a prayer. And I said, if you are trying to tell me something, just tell me in a way that I can understand. And my fingers started typing. this was different now, you know, we'll have stories in a moment about when I was a scribe. This was different than any of my scribal experiences that followed. This, I would imagine, was more like a Ouija board type of experience in that the fingers were typing, but I wasn't hearing anything in my head. I wasn't thinking. I was reading off of the screen. Hmm. And um, the message that I read off of the screen was an invitation uh, to, well, this, this, thing, I'll call it for now, this energy, whatever this was, it introduced itself to me as the teacher of God. And I knew what it meant by teacher of God. I knew that it meant that we are God and we have forgotten. So it's teaching us to remember who we are. So it introduced itself to me as the teacher of God. And it said, that's what is needed now are teachers. So just to clarify that. So it's the be so not it's not it's teaching God. I mean, you're saying it's, it's teaching, teaching God, God. Uh, uh, in in God in our form, who has forgotten that we are God. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like you might say, I'm the teacher of first graders. Yeah. Right. Right. Teacher of God. I'm yeah. the teacher of God. And it, it sounds a little, you know, presumptuous to to say I am I am teaching God. I mean, who can teach God? But what you're saying is, it's a. Uh, you know, we're we're God in human form, having forgotten our true status, and it's sort of wake, helping to wake us up. That's, that's yeah. This this wisdom, I now just call it inner spiritual wisdom. This mm-hmm. wisdom is somehow I don't know how, but it is our true wisdom, our our remembrance of truth, and it has a way of it has many ways of speaking to us. Mm-hmm. And and so this is this is how it started for me. Um, so. It introduced itself as the teacher of God, and it said that teachers were needed now. It asked me to write for it, and it said, um, "It said you can do that. You are doing it now." Yeah. <laughs> and then it asked me to teach what I write, and it told me that's how I would learn. Now, uh, you know, this is pretty amazing if you think about it, because I was a beginner, and I didn't have any arrogance about me. I mean, I didn't see myself as anything but a beginner. I didn't have any arrogance about me that I could go out there and teach others. The The thought had never even crossed my mind. So this is a, a, a pretty amazing experience. And immediately when the experience happened, there was also just this huge feeling of peace. And, and, you know, and I said, yes. But then immediately after I said yes, it's like the peace collapsed and it was replaced by in, incredible fear. Hmm. Uh, at this point in my life, I had never felt fear like this. As I later went through purification, I found there are greater levels of fear. But at this point, this was the most fear I had ever felt. And um, and I just walked up and down. I had this long hallway in my house at the time. And I just walked up and down the hallway, rubbing my arms, 
um, you know, just saying that I was going to do this in, 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 in a way that I'd have to tell another story to get into exactly how I did it. But just saying that I was going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And the fear went away after about two hours. <laughs> and when the fear went away, I felt this intuitive prompt that I was going to go see a movie. And um, it was a Sunday. And I remember that my daughter and I had plans that day. I don't remember what it was, but it wasn't to go see a movie. And I went and I pulled up, I lived in the Boston area then, so I pulled up one of these huge... The Boston um, area. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled up one of these huge uh, cinemas that have like, you know, 30 movies or something, and I'm scanning down the list, and my eyes land on this movie called Shall We Dance, and I know that's the one. And it's a movie starring Richard Gere and Jennifer Lopez. So I went to this movie... And um, I wasn't actually that interested in the movie, which is funny. And I, I might have left, except that I felt strongly there was going to be a message in the movie for me. And the, the message came very clearly in a scene where Jennifer Lopez is teaching Richard Gere to ballroom dance. And he's not doing a very good job of learning. And so she finally says, um, stop. Don't think. Don't move unless you feel it. And I knew those were my instructions because I had just been asked that morning to write and teach. Um, and I knew that it was never to come from me, that I wasn't to sit down and think about what to write or think about what to teach or even think about when to write or when to teach. It was this don't move unless you feel it thing. And I understood those instructions perfectly. Um, I don't know how, because I know that some people, when they hear those same words, don't. But I knew exactly what that meant. And uh, the very first scribing, uh, what I call scribing, came the very next morning. The, the way, just for anyone who doesn't know, um, the way this scribing happened was I would hear, I call it a voice, but it wasn't really a voice. It was, you know, thoughts, you know, mm -hmm. like you can hear your own thoughts when you're talking to yourself. I would hear thoughts but I, they weren't mine, uh, at least at that, way, at that point, that's how they felt. They weren't mine. Mm -hmm. They also didn't come into the head from the same place. I can feel thinking. It seems to happen up here is yeah. what it feels like. And these came in back here. Hmm. They entered from a, a, another location. Yeah. And, and I was just like a, a secretary um, writing. So that's what scribing was like. And at this point, I was still doing The Course in Miracles. So what would happen during the day when I was uh, contemplating the workbook lesson for the day is the scribing would start and it would explain things to me or possibly in some cases even take me uh, beyond the, the Course in Miracles workbook lesson that I was on. So I began to learn with really great, great clarity as a result of this um, inner voice, I'll call it. Yeah. I guess one question I would ask, which is something I've always wondered, um, is, you know, both contemporarily there are a lot of people who are channeling in in various ways and then in terms of ancient stuff there are all kinds of stories of uh, accounts of people you know being zapped with some wisdom and coming out with all kinds of profound stuff which is you know how did they know that they you know they never received that training they're very young this and that they, they just somehow all of a sudden wake up to some wisdom and start speaking and so I, I just I'm always kind of curious about the mechanics of that, you know. I mean, um, 
is is if we think of it in terms of the Holy Spirit or something uh, as some kind of universal amorphous field of intelligence that yeah. but it sounds it seems more volitional than that more intentional like okay I'm choosing this person to speak through you know like and, and that kind of gives it a, <laughs> gives it a feeling like there's some sort of entity that some wise being living on some other plane that's <laughs> that's choosing this its spokespeople and then again yeah. one might think oh well you just kind of maybe maybe these people are just tapping into a deep level of creativity obviously there have been all kinds of creative people in the world who've come out with beautiful music and literature and so on, and uh, there is that that talk of a muse that inspires you to do such things. But maybe we're just maybe there's just a deep field of creativity within each of us, uh, which doesn't have any sort of pers personality or anything. It's yeah. just like an ocean of of potential, and we somehow tap into that and start start speaking or writing profound things that we didn't know we knew. I mean, so have you thought about those kind of questions? Well, of course. I yeah. Mean, yeah. <laughs> and, and as we get further in my story, what we'll hear is that I experience different personalities. Mm. However, in the end, the last personality being that of Ramana Maharshi. Um, but in the end, well, let me just jump to Ramana Maharshi really quickly. Okay. One thing that was interesting about Ramana Maharshi was I didn't, know of him. I mean, I heard the name and that's the extent of it. Uh, and in fact, I knew so little of him that I called him um, Ramana, you know, because I really had seen the name written. I didn't know Ramana. Sure. Right. Um, and when and, and we'll tell in a little bit when we get to that part of the story, how Ramana woke up in me. But when when Ramana woke up in me, um, what was very, very interesting is I knew nothing about this person as a man. And I found all that out later. But I knew him uh, so well because he was myself, mm. not the man, but you know what he the essence of realized, that. what he is, and what I am was the same. Mm -hmm. And it was just so beautiful to to have him wake up in me because it was it was like coming home. Yeah, it was like that's who I've always been. I've been pretending to be somebody else. It feels so good to have you know the genuine. <laughs> be here. Um, so at that point, the idea that these were different personalities dissolved. Yeah. It's like that was a temporary thing. This was my this was my true self speaking to me. And that's the that's that's as far as I can go. I can't go any further than that. Yeah. I mean, um, it's also true that the essence of who you are is identical to the essence of who Groucho Marx was, you know. <laughs> but, but I guess what you're saying is that, you know, in the case of some enlightened being like Ramana, there's uh, going to be the potential for vast wisdom to be to be conveyed. Okay. Um, yeah. It, when I say that I that I knew him as me, um, you know, underneath all of us, underneath who we think we are, or behind, or beyond, or above, whatever word you want to use, <laughs> uh, there's a truth. There's a there's a genuine truth of what we are, um, and most people are not at all aware of that, and so they think themselves to be these people that they think themselves to be. But Ramana was um, such a an embodiment of the true self that I recognized my true self. In, in that, and I knew myself. 
Uh, I knew it was me. There wasn't any doubt. So it was that place, like if you were to take a hand as as different bodies, you know, here's where the hand is all, here's where all these different things are the same. Mm-hmm. He, he took me here. Right. Where we're the same. And so he and I were the same. And, you know, anybody else that I would have had that experience with that was as realized as him would have been able to take me to the same place. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, circumstances turned out to be that it was, you know, Ramana that took me there. But, um, but yeah, it was really, really, really sweet because I, I had no conscious, you know, intellectual memory of that as who I am. Yet the moment that I was taken there, I, I knew it. Yeah. And it was like coming home. So this this may sound like a divergent question, uh, but it's something that puzzles me, and I'd just like to hear your take on it. And it's sort of similar to what I asked a few minutes ago. I mean, I've interviewed a bunch of people who had experiences with Ramana, sometimes before they ever even knew who he was or had right. ever heard of him or anything else. They, they you know, Pamela Wilson and uh, Nick Gonzatano and some other people have had experiences of seeing him or, you know, almost literally, literally seeing him in, in, in some kind of form in their room or something. And um, later on discovering, you know, seeing a book and saying, hey, that's the guy I saw, you know. <laughs> so I'm just kind of curious about the mechanics of that. Um, you know, is Ramana, because some people say, well, somebody liberated like Ramana, once they the body drops, they're gone. You know, they're just like a drop in the ocean, poof, never to be found again. Uh, but, but, you know, this kind of thing sort of implies that, no, there's actually, you know, Jesus is the same situation. There's so many stories of people having experiences of Jesus and having him inter- intervene in their lives and so on. You know, it, it begs the question, you know, do these enlightened beings actually end up on some higher plane you know working on human affairs from that from that place um, or does the divine intelligence which is just all pervading just take a form that we're going to recognize and uh, you know be able to relate to and you know being infinitely wise it knows that we'll relate to Ramana or Jesus or something even though they as entities have long since ceased to exist yeah, well, I, this will take me back to, I told you I had multiple visions and I wasn't <laughs> going to go through them all, but this will take me back to one of those early visions that I had. Uh, I had this vision, this happened at night, where uh, I woke up from sleeping into just, again, light. Um, I couldn't see anything, but I felt the presence of um, of Jesus. I felt the presence of Jesus. And uh, it was really interesting because this is very hard to describe because Jesus was talking to me, but he didn't use any words. Mm -hmm. There were no words at all, yet I understood him perfectly. And when I spoke back, I used words because that's the only way I knew how to talk. (laughs) So, I mean, there weren't weren't thoughts. There was no language. Uh, It was a silent vibration that I understood perfectly. And um, what he showed me was that uh, when awakening happens with you know what appears to be a particular personality, when awakening happens with that particular personality, that personality, the one where the that was there when the awakening happened, continues to get used by the I would call it the one communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so with that experience, I would say your your latter choice, like the. The person. So even when the, that body dies, the personality that inhabited that body continues to have some sort of existence and continue to be used. All right, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know if you could actually say it has an existence. It might be more like, um, I wish I had a doily around me. Like mm-hmm. if I had a, a, you know what a doily is, sure. right? 
Yeah. You know, a doily doesn't really have any existence. It's nothing. But if I was to blow on it, it would kind of blow like it was alive. Mm-hmm. I would say that whatever would be that wind blowing, that's what has the existence. Hmm. And the doily is just being used as a form of communication. Um, you know, maybe because people connect to it differently. Uh, you know, so but but yeah, whatever whatever personality is present when awakening occurs that personality then becomes a part of what's being used by the by the one <laughs> okay how's that for an explanation yeah i mean it still leaves some questions unanswered but i don't know if we can answer them you know it's a, there's a mystery here that is interesting to ponder and uh, yeah mysteries yeah. are great too i think yeah it keeps us from falling back into what you and i started talking about beliefs. which is beliefs. right yeah and like i said at that time Working hypotheses. I mean, this is an interesting yeah. working hypothesis to sort of ponder for the rest of one's life if, if one is yeah. interested in such things. All right, so let me jump back to my story then. So yes. where, we had, where we had left off was um, I was beginning to scribe with the workbook lessons of A Course in Miracles. I also started to receive very specific guidance. <laughs> and I remember I had worked myself into what I thought was a pretty nice place. I had a really nice job. I lived in the town I wanted to live in. My daughter went to this great school that was so good she had to win a lottery to get into it because so many people wanted in it. So, you know, we were in this really nice position in the world. And um, I started receiving guidance to quit my job and move. And in fact, the guidance was very specific in that I was to move (laughs) wherever my daughter wanted to move. And remember, my daughter was six or seven at the time. So I'm supposed to go up to my six or seven-year-old daughter and ask her where she wants to live. So you moved to Disneyland, right? No, (laughs) No, not quite. (laughs) We moved to a place called um, Albemarle, North Carolina. Uh Actually, we ended up getting a house in New London, which is right next to it. But the reason she wanted to move there is that's where my brother and her cousins live. She wanted to be here near her cousins. And now that I look back on that, that was also very wise because this this bought my daughter into the move, right? Her getting to pick the place, ah, she's yeah. bought in, right? It's not happening to her. Um, so uh, I'm a, a single mom, uh, and I'm a single mom who adopted from China. So there's no father in the picture. There's no one to give child support or anything like that. I'm the, the sole supporter of both her and I physically. And so you can imagine the fear that starts coming when I'm to quit my job. And again, I'm raised from Kansas, and the Kansas culture is, you know, you work hard and make a living, and that's how you take care of yourself and your family. And so it was really, really frightening. And this is when I started to find out how great fear can be. Uh, You know, I I began to experience fear sometimes at night that I thought the fear itself might kill me. Mm. Just great, great fear. And I would just lay in the fetal position and breathe. Um, would it have a meaning attached to it or would it just be sort of abstract fear? Well, it was a little bit of abstract, but it was, you know, like disasters coming. You know? yeah. like, like this is a really, really bad decision. Like I'm going to go bankrupt or something. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. yeah, there weren't specific stories. It was yeah. just that general feeling of, oh, my God, what are you doing? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and the only reason I can say that I did it in spite of the fear. Um, you remember the show when we were younger called Let's Make a Deal? Yeah, I don't know if I ever watched it, but I remember the name of it. Yeah, and let's make a deal. What would happen is, um, what was his name? Bob. 
Oh, well. Not Bob Newhart. It, it wasn't. No, Bob Barker? Was that his name? Bob, Bob Barker? Bob Barker, right, yeah. Okay, Bob Barker would go out into the audience and he'd pick someone and, and you know, he'd ask, like, do you have a stapler in your purse? And if mm-hmm. you do, then you get to play along. And people would come with these big bags with all kinds of stuff in yeah. it. So he would find someone to play. And once he found someone to play, there would be three doors. Mm-hmm. And he'd ask them to pick whatever door they wanted and, and they could have the prize behind the door. And it could be anything. It could be a trip to Hawaii, a new car. It could be a rubber chicken hanging on a string. It could be anything. <laughs> and uh, and so sometimes they would pick and it would be a pretty decent prize, like a washer and dryer. Mm-hmm. And then he'd say, okay, do you want to keep what you got uh, behind try for something door better, or yeah. trade it for another door? It could yeah. be greater or less. Well, I felt like I had a picked door number one. That was the life that I had designed for myself. And then I had the washer and dryer. Like, it's a pretty decent life, pretty yeah. decent gift. And I felt like what this um, was asking me to do was asking me if I wanted to trade for what was behind door number two. Hmm. And there was just this feeling that if I didn't say yes, I would never be fully happy again because I'd always wonder what would have happened if I had said yes. Mm-hmm. You know, like I couldn't be satisfied with the washer and dryer life anymore. Right. So, so that's what led me to um, to say yes and quit my job and uh, and move to Albemarle, North Carolina. Um, Very brave of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incidentally, before we before we get off Bob Barker, this has nothing to do with the interview. But if you, did you ever watch the the TV show Whale Wars? No. It's this great show about these really brave young people who were down in this in in Antarctica uh, opposing the Japanese whalers and preventing them from killing whales. But anyway, Bob Barker donated this really nice big ship for them to oh. to use in that endeavor. So just yeah. you know, praise <laughs> for Bob Barker here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he cared. <laughs> um about three days before we moved, um, first of all, about six days before we moved, I finished A Course in Miracles. And when, but when I say I finished A Course in Miracles, what I mean is I had read the manual for teachers twice, the text twice, and completed the workbook in the way it's supposed to be completed. So I, I finished A Course in Miracles. And uh, about three days after that, which is three days before the move, um, I received a, a scribal message. You know, it came through the inner voice. Um, and it asked me to read the New Testament and to let the New Testament be interpreted for me. Uh, and, and it said that if I if I would realize that I didn't know what it meant, that it that it could interpret it for me. And um, and then you know, three days later we moved and we got to North Carolina and you know we're settling in. And then and then one morning after we're settled in, um, I wake up and I hear it, it's time to begin. Hmm. So what I did was I just started at the beginning of the New Testament with the book of Matthew, and I would just read. And when I would read, I would feel this intuitive prompt when to stop reading, and it varied. It could be a sentence, a paragraph, you know, a story, whatever. But I would always know when to stop reading. And in the beginning, I always thought I knew what it meant. So the first thing I had to do was practice letting go of what I thought it meant. And the way I would do that is I would envision what I thought on a, on a chalkboard in my mind, and then I would erase it. And when I was empty of what I thought it meant, and I only wanted to hear uh, an, the interpretation that this inner wisdom would give me, uh, then that inner voice or that, this, you know, that thought stream that comes from here would begin, and I was just taking notes. And this went on for 13 and a half months. Um, and that ended up being published. That's a, you know another story, but obviously we can't tell 
all the stories. <laughs> Short no, lots of them. No, yeah, I, I have stories. long interviews. But <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just put it this way: I didn't go looking for a publisher. Yeah. Uh, the publisher was was you know it basically came to me. Um, so, but the book ended up being published, um, and that's what we call the Holy Spirit's interpretation of the New Testament, or NTI, which stands for New Testament Interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, but from my perspective, uh, what was interesting about NTI was it kind of met me where I was left off at the end of A Course in Miracles and took me further. So, and it also cleared up some uh, confusions that I developed as a student of A Course in Miracles. Um, there's something about the way the Course is, is worded and the way the ego reads the Course uh, that can lead to a, a lot of very serious confusions. Mm -hmm. And those confusions were also undone through the writing of NTI. Mm -hmm. So NTI was was my next step. And it's great that it's out there, you know, for others, because there are others that are definitely finding it useful. But for me, this was a very personal thing. Uh, it, 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 it wasn't about writing a book for others. It was about me and my awakening. Yeah. There's a guy named, I think his name's Raphael Kushner, and he has this interview series called Teaching What We Need to Learn. And mm -hmm. I just I just like the phrase, you know, because the best way to learn something is to teach it or to be a scribe for it or something, you know, I, I rather agree. than to just sort of passively be exposed to it. Yeah, I agree 100%. So, and what I didn't tell you, by the way, um, was prior to all of this beginning, well, I kind of mentioned it, um, my professional career was I was a, a corporate trainer and course writer. Mm -hmm. So it's not that odd that I should be selected for this kind of thing. It's kind of like selecting a musician to play music for God or selecting right. a, a chef to cook for God, right? I mean, it's not it's not that unusual. This yeah. was my Within this your was skill my set. Talent. Yeah, my talent, my skill set, exactly. Yeah. Um, One thing I wish, um, I was listening to the NTI and uh, since I'm not super familiar with the Bible, I, I wished that you, when you wrote it, you had like read the New Testament passage, yeah. you know, verbatim, and then just read your commentary, you know, and gone back and forth. Because I, I would almost recommend people who actually read the physical book to have the Bible there and to go back and forth as you comment on each verse to refresh yeah. their memory of, of what the Bible verse is. And if you have the book in TI, whenever that's highly recommended that you read the Bible first, there's a little Bible icon at the beginning of the paragraph. Right, okay, good. Along with the verses. Also, just kind of as an aside, uh, when, I, when I was the scribe for NTI and I scribed the book of John, I knew intuitively that, um, that there was more in the book of John than I was ready for. Mm. Uh, so the book of John, I mean, it's okay, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I always knew there was more there than I was ready for. In the last year, I went back through the book of John, um, and I did that not writing, but as a teaching. I would read from the Bible, and then the interpretation would come, and I spoke it live. So, and it's really, I think it's really just much more clear, uh, because I'm ready for more now. Yeah. So if anybody wants to listen to that, and I am reading the Bible, uh, if you just go to reginadonacres.com, underneath audios, you'll find a teaching called The Guiding Light. Mm -hmm. And The Guiding Light ha has a, a link there for me reading the book of John and having it interpreted just in the last year. And it's really, it's really phenomenal. So some people might enjoy that. Yeah. Have you ever done anything with the Gnostic Gospels? No, I haven't. Yeah. That'd yeah. be, that'll keep you busy for... People often ask me to do the, New Te <laughs> the Old Testament, too, and I've just never felt yeah. that that prompt, so yeah. I haven't had either. Okay. Yeah. So, um, after NTI came, 
Uh, and again, a publisher showed up. And so, you know, I was doing all this stuff that you have to do to get it ready for the publisher. On the day that I sent it off, um, I said this prayer. And uh, the prayer was something kind of like, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you <laughs> for letting me do this. Um, but I don't want this to stop. I knew that I was awakening and I, I don't want this to stop. And I said, please send me something else that will take me higher into love. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I ended up meeting this man uh, from Paris, France, who I immediately did not like. Um, but we started receiving guidance to uh, join in a, in a couple relationship with him. And he also started receiving the same guidance. Now, what's really interesting about this was I had a boyfriend that I'd been with, you know, 13 or so years, maybe 16 years. I don't remember exactly now. I'd have to do the math. But uh, and, he, and I really, you know, I mean, there was nothing wrong with him. I, I wasn't in a relationship where I was trying to get rid of who I was with. Huh. Um, but this guidance just kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. So uh, when I finally accepted the guidance, what happened is this this man lives in Paris. And um, had you someone, met in person or just over the internet? We had met. He had come. He had come to one of my retreats for a weekend. And so I had met him for a weekend. Mm -hmm. and, and like I said, I didn't particularly like him. <laughs> so it was, this literally wasn't a, a romantic attraction kind of thing. It just right. had nothing to do. It felt like what I would call an arranged marriage. Yeah. That's what it was like. yeah. Um, but the one I finally surrendered to it was uh, somebody sent me uh, a scripture. Like it was, they said, this is my daily scripture for the day. It was a Christian person that I knew. And she said, I just felt like sending this to you. And she knew nothing about what was going on with me. Yeah. And the scripture was from um, Ecclesiastes. And it was something about how uh, two people are better than one on the spiritual path, you know, basically was the, the gist of the scripture. And I understood, you know, that spoke to me. But what was really interesting was I talked to him on the phone that night and he told me how he had checked out this spaghetti Western uh, video and, you know, he hated the movie, but he's watching the movie anyway because he really felt guided to do it. And for some reason, right in the middle of the movie, they put on the screen and it was the exact same scripture. Two people are better than one. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I'd have to look up the scripture to get the exact mm. wording, but that was the idea. And That's it was exact, it was the exact same scripture from Ecclesiastes. So huh. when that happened within the same 24-hour period, um, that's when I thought, okay, I need to do this. So I broke up with my boyfriend, and of course, at first, he felt very rejected. Yeah. And he's not on the spiritual path at all. He has zero interest in it. Mm. So I, I tried to explain it to him as best that I could. Uh, and I told him, I, you know, I used words that I thought he might understand. I told him I wanted to be enlightened in this lifetime and that this relationship had something to do with that. And I, and I needed to do this. And his response was, all right, well, if this is God, I know God loves me, too. So I'm going to wait for you. Huh. That was his response. By the way, I'm hmm. still with him now. I'm back with him. We've been together 25 years now. Wow. But at that time, I didn't know that I would ever be going back with him. I, I even asked him not to wait for me, you know, but he did. Um, and so I joined into this relationship with this French gentleman, and he comes to North Carolina and lives with me. I always tell people our first date was living together for six weeks. He mm -hmm. would come and go for the, for the year and a half because he was always on just a tourist visa. Right. Um, so he would come and go. And uh, our first experience with one another was 
pure hatred. Hmm. Um, just, I mean, I, I didn't even know that I was capable of hating that much. Other than, other than the fact that we both wanted to awaken, we had nothing in common. We were just polar opposites. He was kind of raised, um, you know, rich, Paris, uh, Paris, you know, French, Jewish, all of that, you know, which has one culture to it. I'm from Kansas. <laughs> um, he, he was like a, a night person. He wouldn't even get up till 11, 12, 1 o'clock. He'd take another nap at 5 in the afternoon. Then he was up all night. I'm like, get up 6 in the morning, go to bed at 9 at night. He eats dinner at midnight, you know, 10, 10, 11, midnight. Uh, he, he perceived me as ugly, and I perceived him as um, a weak a weak specimen of a man like he didn't know how to do you know the men that I knew knew how to do things like mow lawns maybe some plumbing he didn't know how to do anything you know so so we, we weren't that fond of each other what was really oh and, and also uh, this was a big one for me remember that I had left my job and and I was, I, when I left my job, uh, I sold my house in Boston, where ho houses are more expensive in Boston than they are in North Carolina. So I was able to take the equity out of that house. I was able to pay cash for a house in North Carolina, and I had 50000 left over. But by now, this I'd been in, been there a few years, and this 50000 was dwindling down. I wasn't receiving any donations. I didn't have any income whatsoever. And this guy comes along and starts really spending my money. Well, uh, he didn't have I thought you said he was rich. He no, yeah, but his father, he was rich through his father, uh, and his father cut him off when he came to live with me. I see. So, so he had no money of his own, and he was really spending my money, and he had ideas um, that you had to have the most expensive of everything, where I'm trying to be frugal. And I remember the day I had just the hugest meltdown into hate I ever had. It's kind of a funny story that had to do with butter. He bought like this, you know, five dollars a pound butter you know <laughs> when it could have been a dollar you know or less you know and i just you know it just just this meltdown it was just so wasteful it was my money and and just so much hate i gotta throw in a funny story here sorry to interrupt <laughs> my, my wife and i did our honeymoon in north carolina in the mountains up near boone or someplace like that and um in a friend's cabin and one time we went into this little tiny store it was miles from anywhere and to, and we, we we asked for butter and there were these characters standing around and they all thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever heard they were all going butter <laughs> and we still tell that story like 30 years later <laughs> it's that famous movie where those guys go down the river oh um yeah, that famous movie where the guys go down the river and and they there's it's it's real scary, ter scary and redneck. Ter that's what it was like. like that. Yeah, I forget, I forget <laughs> the movie. I think it. Yeah, go ahead. Anyway, I tell her I said hello. By the way, because oh, I haven't okay. been able to speak. Regina to her says yet. hello. <laughs> um, well, one thing that was really interesting, in spite of all this uh, uh, hatred, and again, you know, he would you know tell me how ugly I was and all this kind of stuff. And um, one thing that was really interesting about this was, in spite of all of this, because of the way the relationship had come about, uh, we both knew that there were healing opportunities for us or awakening opportunities for us in this relationship. And so we sat down, hating each other, and we held hands and we said a prayer, and. Um, and I don't remember exactly what we said in that prayer, but basically the the prayer, the gist of the prayer was this relationship is only for 
awakening, you know, what is it that we need to see? And a whole nother uh, scribing started from me now that NTI was done. I started scribing these messages from, again, at that time we called Holy Spirit that were directly to me and him about um, what needed to be let go in us, you know, about what the errors were in our minds, the beliefs, the perceptions, the attachments that were causing all of the hate um, and, and how we could let those go. And one teaching that came during that time, you know, through these messages that I think was really important was something that um, we, we called the code. We picked the name for it. Uh, but the idea behind the code is very simple, actually. The idea is that when a thought comes into the mind, um, that thought comes into the mind actually from the oneness. We perceive it as an individual thought, but it's not. Uh, it may have an individual type of story to it, but the thought comes into the mind from the oneness. And what's not really real about the thought, because no thoughts are real, but what's most real about the thought is not the story the thought is telling, but the content of the thought. So for example, I'm a pretty neat and clean person, and, and this gentleman was not. <laughs> and so one of the thoughts in my mind was about what a slob he was all of the time. And so what I was shown was, although I, you know, I could look around the house and I could find the proof that he was a slob, I was right, you know, um, what I needed to do was kind of look under the covers of the thought instead of looking at the, the story. And when I look under the covers of the thought, that was a hate thought. And that if I believe that hate thought, I'm going to experience hate. And remember, I told you that I was experiencing great hate at this time. And if I wanted to be free of hate, if I wanted peace and joy and, you know, all the, as, I, as my actual experience, that I really can't be digesting these hate thoughts. I can't go around on a diet of hate thoughts and expect to have an experience of, you know, peace, love, and joy. So what I was taught to do was to look at a thought, to look beyond the story, to look at the content, and to realize I don't want that. So, you know, it comes in, you know, what a slobby is. I look underneath. That's a hate thought. I don't want hate. Therefore, I, I let go of this. And so I learned to, to, to look at thoughts in a different way, and I learned to then not accept them, not, you know, I don't mean resist them, but not believe them, not digest them. And I learned to just let thoughts go by, by realizing I don't want the content. You know, it could be a hate thought. It could be a, a fear thought. It could be an unworthiness thought. It could be a guilt thought. And the question was, do I want these things as my experience? Or do I want something else as my experience? And I really learned to let go of um, you know, these story level thoughts that appeared true because of the content and because of my desire for uh, peace and joy and love. Sounds very Byron Katie-ish. Yeah, I suppose it, it is. I didn't know her then, but I suppose yeah. it is. So it, for a year and a half uh, in this relationship, uh, this is basically what was happening. There was one story after another and and I would see the falsehood in it and learn to let it go. Um, one really big story that, that a lot of people enjoy um, there was a there was a point, in, in spite of the fact that we started with hate, I, hate was the first thing I learned to let go of as far as content. I learned to let go of it. I learned that hate isn't real. 
that literally we only uh, experience hate if we, you know, buy into hate thoughts. And if you don't buy into hate thoughts, you can't experience hate because it's not there by itself, right? Hey, since you're speaking of thoughts, uh, a oh, question sure. came in from a fellow named William in Miami. And he asked, people speak of extinguishing the mind. How does this happen? If we don't have any thoughts, what do we have? I don't think you're saying yeah. you didn't have any thoughts. You're talking about hate well, no, thoughts, I'm, but you could probably answer that question. Yeah, I can answer that question to a point. Mm -hmm. Uh, my mind is not extinguished, so that's why I say to a point. But there is significantly less mind than there used to yeah. be. It's almost like it's thinning, right? It's thinning and thinning and thinning. And each time it thins a little more, the intuition is greater. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I recently went through a, another thinning just in the last month and a half or so. And the intuition is like a thousand times what it was prior to that thinning of the mind. So, so there's this natural wisdom of the universe. I mean, I think the, the, the point of the question is there's this belief that we have that I am the person and that I need this mind, uh, this person mind to take care of me, protect me, keep me safe, all of that. Uh, and that's not true. We're not the person, therefore we don't need the person mind. We're something far beyond the person. In fact, you could say we're the intelligence that made up the people. <laughs> mm. Therefore, we have far greater intelligence than, than the little person does. And so as we let go of the person, we, we realize this far greater intelligence and it does a much, much better job. That's yeah. the answer. <laughs> that's a good answer. Um. <laughs> um, so. Uh, so back to the story. Yes. So, so the next story I was going to tell, in, in spite of the fact that we started with hatred, uh, hate is the first thing I learned to let go of. Uh, I really worked very hard on, on those hate thoughts. And it's actually amazing how quickly hate, it died for me because I just saw that it wasn't real and I didn't have to believe it and it just died. Um, and after hate died for me, uh, there was this little period where we seemed to fall in love. It didn't last long. It was very brief, but we seemed to fall in love. He is a very romantic Frenchman. I just thought, this is heaven. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is great. And um, one day, for a reason that I didn't know about then, years later, he explained it to me, but I didn't know then. Uh, he left my bedroom. You know, he, we were sleeping together, of course. He left my bedroom and he moved into the guest room and he began to avoid me. As I mentioned, he was a night person. I was a day person. I would, I would go into my room at night to go to bed and, and close the door. And five minutes after I came out, he would come out and he lived at the, in the house at night. I lived in the house during the day. And if our paths happened to cross, he was looking at me with just so much, he still had the hatred. <laughs> he was looking at me with so much hatred. And I felt um, what came up in me then was, um, Surprising that he would keep coming and I mean you said he had to keep coming and going because of visa problems. It's surprising to me that he would keep coming back. Yeah, well, he did. Yeah. <laughs> so there was this um, there was this re feeling of rejection. And again, this is when that uh, you know, the best way to describe it is I'm the ugliest woman on the planet Earth. I'm the most useless person on the planet Earth. Why should anybody want I mean just all this stuff started really coming up. And uh, it was my heart was broken. You know, I just thought I had the greatest thing in the world. And now all of a sudden it's taken away. And it was really a very difficult time. Uh, but when I sat down with the inner wisdom to look at it, um, first, the inner wisdom asked me if I had ever felt this before. And I could remember, of course, feeling rejected before in previous relationships. 
And so the inner wisdom asked me if if I could then accept that this was in me and had nothing to do with him and the situation. And at first I lied <laughs> to inner wisdom. How stupid is that? I said, yeah, I can. And then I went, no, I can't. <laughs> I can't. I can't accept that this is um, me and not him. You know, he is definitely rejecting me. And, and that's why I feel this way. And the inner wisdom said that um, it wasn't him. That what it was was my own belief in how rejectable I was, mm. you know, right? That that's what was hurting me, not him. And and it just asked me to do this simple thing that every time a thought crossed my mind that um, that he was somehow hurting me, he was rejecting me. For me, just to say to myself, you know, I'm not going to say his name here because actually he's also a spiritual teacher. Right. <laughs> but you know, um, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> it's not X that is rejecting me it's my own belief in my own rejectability mm -hmm. and just to say this every time and um, and so I started practicing that and it was really interesting because you know in a normal relationship he would have moved out he would have gone back to Paris and you know he hated me we'd never see each other again this guy's living in my house yeah. so I have to deal with this every day uh, which also the inner wisdom told me that that was a very fortunate situation because I did have to deal with it if he had left I might not have right so every time that pain would come up and this idea that he was somehow hurting me, rejecting me, I would say that. And after, it seems to me now, about two months, I still had that broken heart, but I began to feel what felt like light around it. Mm -hmm. and, and I knew that it was ending. And within about 24 hours, it ended. And the way I see changed <laughs> completely. Uh, the belief in rejection died in me. So I... I am no longer capable of even seeing rejection. I mean, I see people break up and I see people say mean things to each other, but I don't see it as rejection. Sometimes I see it as a natural progression of this is what was supposed to happen now. Sometimes I see it as a person believing their thoughts and being in pain and acting it out, but I don't actually see people reject each other anymore. I, that, that just died. And when it died, I could no longer see him rejecting me. I could only see a brother who was in great pain and needed assistance. And at that point, I became his, his friend. Hmm. Um, so, you know, again, there's lots of stories like this in that relationship. For a year and a half, it was just a, a healing relationship. And uh, I like to say I probably saved a thousand years, maybe a thousand lifetimes in that year and a half. And, and there's an element of truth to that. Then one day, after about a year and a half, I got up. And uh, I was contemplating the Tao Te Ching, and I got a very unique contemplation that day. It just had to do with that day. It's never come again when I've read the Tao Te Ching. But that day when I was um, reading the Tao Te Ching, I had a, a vision where he and I were walking down this road together, and we came to a fork in the road. And one part of the fork was staying as a couple, and the other part of the fork was no longer being a couple. And I was told we needed to go down the no longer being a couple fork now because he was feeling possessed and love doesn't possess. So we needed to let him go. And I was promised that everything else I still needed for my awakening, I would continue to get, that there was no loss in this. So when he woke up that day, you know, which was much later than me, um, I told him this. And at first he seemed shocked. And then this big smile just crossed his face. <laughs> and it turns out that the night before, uh, while I was asleep, he was out walking my dog around midnight. And uh, again, he's kind of this romantic Frenchman. So he's talking to the moon. <laughs> and, he, and he said to the moon, um, 
you know, that he wanted to serve his father. And he said, but can't I have fun too? His and heavenly the, father, you mean? Yeah, his heavenly right. father. But, and, 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 but can't I have fun too? And there was something in that, but can't I have fun too? There was something in that that, that shifted. You know, I like to say it shifted the universe. Mm-hmm. So without me even knowing about that, when I woke up the next morning, I had this vision. So in ending the relationship, it was actually a gift to him. Um, and I think it was a very important gift for him because I think the reason he stayed in the relationship as long as he did is because it did feel like a guided relationship. And I think that he thought he would somehow be bad if he left a relationship that, you know, God or the universe had put him in. Right. And now that same thing was setting him free from it. So it was, it was kind of a communication that it was okay, that he's allowed to feel what he feels and thinks what he thinks. So it was really a very beautiful, beautiful thing. And, uh, and that's how that relationship ended. And then, you know, my current boyfriend and I, we just went right back together like like nothing ever happened. And we've been together ever since. So Interesting. Interesting how we have karma to work out with some people and and uh, and lessons to be learned with some people. Maybe. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And he and I, you know, we have this really genuine love for each other now, you know. Right. Like, you know, people often ask that. Well, do you love him now? Well, absolutely. Yeah. How can you not love someone that you go through so much healing with? Right. Yeah. So, but you know, he has his life and I have mine. Right. He is the French publisher of NTI. Oh. Um, so the next thing that happened in the story is that uh, one advantage to having him around, because again, I was, um, he, we were so opposite, is I learned to be very inward focused on intuition. So he would say something and instead of reacting from the head or from the personality, I would kind of, in my own way, ask intuition, how am I to see this? You know, what am I to think? What am I to say? You know, not asking questions, but just this checking in thing. Just checking in, yeah. Yeah, and and I was really, um, really inward. When he left, it got easier and I actually dropped that habit of being inward. And I went back to thinking again. And uh, and it was it was hell, you know, after after living without the thinking mind as your primary mode of transportation to come back to it was really, really difficult. And after about three months, you know, sometimes I always tell people I'm a very slow learner. (laughs) Three months of hell. I finally uh, said another prayer. And and um, and this time I asked for something that would take me to the next step. And. Immediately, I felt guidance to go on Amazon.com and order this book from Ramana Maharshi. And again, I knew the name. I knew literally nothing else. Uh, And when I went to Amazon.com, I knew exactly which book to order. I just knew. So I ordered it. And when the book came a few days later, I expected to open it and just like, you know, like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. But I couldn't understand it. You know, this I had never, ever, ever been involved in anything outside of somewhat of a Christian tradition. You know, A Course in Miracles is a Christian tradition. NTI, obviously, is a Christian tradition. So I didn't know any of the terms that are used in, the, in this book. I didn't, and I just couldn't understand it. So I threw the book down, and it laid there for a, a couple of weeks, as I remember it now. And one day I was sitting near where I had thrown the book down, doing my morning meditation and contemplation. And uh, on the cover of this book is this lovely, lovely picture of um, Ramana Maharshi. Uh, and what started happening was that picture, <laughs> that picture started to come alive. 
uh, he would he would come out of the book like a, a 3D person and then go back in and come out of the book and go back in. It was this was a very real thing that was happening. This wasn't a vision. I mean, I've experienced visions. This seemed real, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and silly me, I tried to ignore it. I, you know, this was disturbing my meditation, my contemplation. <laughs> <laughs> this this thing happening, and uh, and then I heard what I what I had called the Holy Spirit. I heard that familiar inner voice ask me. It said, "Ask him what he wants to say to you." And so I did. I asked him what he wanted to say to me, and that's when um, that's when I say uh, in Ramana Maharshi woke up in me is just the way I word it. But that's when I began to experience him, and I began to receive messages from him. Uh, again, for me, you know, sometimes people say that's not what Ramana taught. And, you know, I don't know. I think sometimes they're wrong, actually. But <laughs> but also, I think Ramana taught whatever the person in front of him needed to hear. He taught that one. And so he obviously from inside of me taught me. He did. Um, he, he taught all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, I think he, so too. he said meditate, don't meditate, you know, yeah. do self-inquiry, don't do self-inquiry, do service, don't do service. I mean, yeah. <laughs> according to the person's need. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. When people narrow him down to one teaching, I think they're they're really um, narrowing him down. Yeah. But anyway, so that's when this next this next and it ended up being a book. Also, again, I didn't seek to publish it. A guy walked up to me and told me he was feeling to start a publishing company and, and publish this book. So that's how that happened. But this that's when these messages started coming. They're now called the teachings of inner. I still say Ramana. I still say Ramana because that's how I knew him then. Mm-hmm. The teachings of inner Ramana. I say Ramana Maharshi and inner Ramana, if I say it differently. Um, but that's when these messages began to, began to came, and this is how I learned about self-inquiry. So I learned about self-inquiry um, from within. And I was actually taught, you know, you can almost say two forms of self-inquiry, but actually they work together. Um, but one I call little s self-inquiry and the other one capital S self-inquiry. But the first type of self-inquiry is like this. So let's say that uh, I'm nervous about my interview with, you know, the great Rick Archer. (laughs) 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 Really, I I do love you, and I think you know that. But um, anyway, so I'm nervous about my interview with Rick Archer, and, you know, all these thoughts are in my mind about, you know, the interview. Well, the way the self-inquiry works is the first thing that I would ask is – uh, basically a question like, what is it that sees these thoughts? And when I ask, what is it that sees these thoughts, what happens is a, a detachment from the thoughts. And I know you know this. You know, Suddenly I see that I am the one looking at the thoughts, not thinking the thoughts. So that first question, who is it that sees these thoughts, before me and the thoughts were like this, now it creates some space. But then after that space is created through the first question, who sees these thoughts, the next question is, who am I? And that turns around and looks at the true self, right? And so it's, it's really two questions. One, just to suck, create some space. And then two, to turn around and, and look at the true self. And that was the form of, um, of self-inquiry that I learned from Inner Romana. Um, and so that is, that is the self-inquiry that, that I have practiced and, and, and still practice. Um, and it's pretty effective for you. It's extremely effective. Yeah. And it's then, interesting how things are effective for you. I mean, you, 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 you do a prayer, you get a result. You know, yeah. you, you do some sort of self-inquiry, you get a result. I mean, not everybody, I, I think, gets such immediate results with things. So well, that I says something. I have a partial theory about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think my theory is um, it depends on what you want. Mm. 
You know, like from the time this whole thing has started, um, I have wanted to know truth. And I think some people, you know, they kind of want to know truth. Maybe, maybe they even more want to be enlightened. I think wanting to be enlightened is a completely different thing than wanting to know truth, actually. Is it? But then they also yeah. still want the romantic relationship. They still want, you know, this. They still want that. And so they have all of these different wants going in different directions, mm -hmm. and they're conflicting. And that's why the results are different. I think that if, there, if you get to the point in your heart, in your, in your genuine heart, where you really just want this one thing and you're willing to let everything else go, I think the results are much faster. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Yeah. yeah. So um, the last thing that uh, Inner Ramana taught me was um, about three states of mind. Uh, one state of mind is called resistor. The next one is called doubter. And the last one is called abiding. And in fact, notice the resistor and the doubter have a person there. And abiding really doesn't. It's not abider. Mm -hmm. And what I was taught is that the resistor is the, the, the average person in the world who really thinks they know who they are. You know, I'm, my name is Regina. I'm from Kansas. I like this and this and this. I don't like this and this and this. I want this. I don't want that. You know, that's, that's the resistor, the person who fully believes that they're the person. The doubter is actually progressive on the spiritual path. The doubter is the person who is beginning to doubt that they are the person. They're beginning to question those thoughts. Is that who I am? They're also beginning to receive inner wisdom in some way, you know, maybe within like I did, but maybe by, you know, listening to a great teacher like Adya or some, somebody like that. But, you know, they're, they're, they're receiving wisdom. They're getting inner confirmation no matter how it's coming. But they still, they don't see that as their wisdom. Uh, they still feel like the student learning, even, you know, even, it's so silly now to me, but even when I was receiving all this wisdom from within, I thought I was the student learning from something, you mm. know, out there somewhere, right? And so that's the doubter. And the doubter is really kind of doubting in two directions. They're beginning to doubt that they're the person, but they also still doubt that, that they're the true self, right? So that's the doubter. And then abiding is the one who accepts uh, this is what I am and then just becomes that, just lives that, you know. Uh, so what I was told was that I had had a, a very healthy doubter stage now, uh, but it was time for me to move into abiding, that I no longer needed to pretend to be the student talking to an inner voice, that I had had enough experience with this inner wisdom that I knew that it was always here, always available, you know, and, and, and so that I could just let go of that, that doubter phase and begin abiding. And that's when uh, you could say any sense of a voice um, ended for me. It would have to at that point, because if it had stayed, it would have left me stuck in the, in the doubter phase. Mm -hmm. So that was the end of my scribal experience. And that was in 2009. Hmm. So that's like seven years ago. So you haven't done any sort of scribing of any kind since then? No, I do contemplation, and the way I experience contemplation is that um, I have realizations, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I put them in my own words. Hmm. So no longer ascribing experience. Yeah. So what you just told us about those three things, would that be a summation of, of what's contained in the Inner Ramana book? Uh, well, there's two other things in the Inner Ramana book that I didn't mention. One is uh, it does teach that surrender. Remember, I had used that surrender in my relationship with the French man, mm -hmm. and then I had gotten away from it. So the first thing it does is it puts me back there. Yeah. It puts me back into you know being focused within as to what, I, what am I to do, what am I to say, how am I to see this, right? And then the second thing it did was it taught me a mantra. 
the mantra was I am that I am and the purpose of the mantra was to uh, move out of just endless mind wandering so like if you're doing dishes and you know the mind is just doing whatever it does when you notice that um, you take a moment to be silent to drop into the heart and then you say I am that I am and then you just linger there and in fact this this also created another shift there have been many 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 shifts along the way and of course I'm skipping so much in the story but um saying that mantra is what really helped me to become aware of um, of you know the self that lives behind the self <laughs> you know the changeless the changeless nature uh, and it was saying that mantra it wasn't an intellectual understanding of the mantra it was just saying it something about saying that mantra on a regular basis uh, you know I still remember the day that I realized you know the self I was just walking across the yard I think I was going over to my neighbor's yard to get their dog I used to get their dog every day and bring it to my house to hang out with my dog and I was just walking across the yard and all of a sudden just you know I realized I'm not I'm not this person you know <laughs> that's not what I am you know this this I'm this you know I don't know what to call this uh, I would call it if you're going back to A Course in Miracles in that language you know in the beginning of A Course in Miracles it says um, nothing real can be threatened nothing unreal exists herein lies the peace of God I'm that something real <laughs> you know, like yeah. I'm that something real that can't be threatened that, that would be the words that I probably would have put on it but something in saying the mantra on a regular basis um, helped helped me to, to get there and to see that at first as little glimpses it would like come and go but then through self-inquiry uh, you know looking at it more and more and more so but the mantra helped get me there and then self-inquiry is the, the third thing that it teaches so it really teaches three tools surrender mantra and self-inquiry all three tools are really designed to help break our dependence on the, per the thinking mind mm -hmm. and so that thing stabilized eventually yeah it's mostly stable um you know I still have now it's more like I have little glitches out rather yeah, than yeah. little glitches in right right <laughs> To say 100% stable would not be true, mm -hmm. um, but but very very stable. You know more more. But every now and then there'll be a little glitch out, and they don't last long. I immediately see when I because of how I feel. Yeah. I immediately see when I've become attached to something, when I've made something important that isn't important, and I can just you know take a breath, look at it, and and, and shift back again. Yeah. Even the Sargadatta said something like that. Someone yeah. asked him if they ever lost it or something. He said there might be some <laughs> little moment, but immediately yeah. you know shift back. Um, it's uh, one thing I liked in a recording I, that I think you made somewhat recently. It was a very sort of frank admission that, you know, you, you, firstly you don't like to say anything that you haven't experienced. I think that's what you said in that recording. Yes. And and secondly, that you just have no sense of having finally arrived at anything, which is right. kind of a recurring theme for me in these interviews because I'm, I'm not sure that anyone ever does finally arrive at anything. There's, there's like I mean, you know, even though certain things can become stable, like your your realization, there's always a next horizon, always some dimension uh, in which further development can take place. At least as I yeah. understand it. Yeah. Well, as I, you know, as I was saying in that particular recording, what I was doing was I was teaching on a quote mm -hmm. um, from the Yoga Vasista, and, and 
I'm sorry. <laughs> I told you I just read these things. I don't know. I don't know anything. Right. Anyway, uh, so Vashista. Say that again. Vashista. Vashista. Okay. Um, and the quote was saying that there is no world, no mind, no I. Well, the mm. no I part is easy. <laughs> yeah. But the no world, the no mind part, um, you know, that's that's still beyond my experience. Mm -hmm. And so if that is a truth, I, I, I accept it as a possibility. If you say no, that's not possible. Uh, you're not going to go anywhere, you know? <laughs> right? If I had said no when I had that first Peace Pilgrim, uh, when I read that first Peace Pilgrim idea that we're all one, if I just said no, that's ridiculous, and closed the book and put it down, that would have been the end of the story right there. So you have to accept things as possibilities if 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 the inside is somehow you know pointing you to look that way. Uh, but it's not my direct experience. I don't know uh, that at some point there is an awakening that's so profound that there is no more world. However, with that said, I do have experiences that might point to that possibility. One experience that I had, and you might know about this, was um, I had an experience of being an apple. Oh, yeah. For yeah, yeah, yeah. I read about that, and I also had an apple experience, so I thought that was pre pretty interesting. Go ahead, go ahead and tell the uh, the thing. Wait, I want to hear what you said first. Who had the experience? I also had an apple experience. Oh, yeah, so oh, I, I, I found that. that was kind of amusing that you had one. But go ahead so and tell your experience. Ramana Maharshi are the grand teachers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. In my experience, it was um, it was you know I wasn't in meditation or anything like that. I was sitting on the bed in my bedroom with my daughter. Mm -hmm. She was watching Disney TV and eating an apple, and I was either paying bills or balancing the checkbook. I don't remember which, but doing something with the checkbook. And all of a sudden, I'm going to call it the true I, okay, what I really am, that I shifted into the apple, and I became the apple. And what's really interesting about this is that when I shifted, nothing human came with me. So I had no brain, you know, I couldn't have thoughts like I'm an apple. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, I, was, I was an apple and apples aren't human, you know, so it was a, an entirely different experience. And when I was the apple, I, what was really interesting is I could still see. Yeah. Uh, people don't think that apples can see because they don't have eyes, but I could. And in fact, I could see better than I can with eyes because I could see outside of me, inside of me, 360 degrees, wherever you could say wherever my awareness wandered, I could see. Mm -hmm. And it could wander anywhere, right? And the only thing I saw was light. I could see light. But there was kind of what I would call two types of light. So this was still what I call an experience of form, not beyond perception entirely. There was space, and space was kind of a clear light. It was a light, but it was like clear. And then there were objects, you know, it could be any object. I'll, I'll use this. There were objects and objects were like compacted, compacted light. It's almost like light crunched into light. Mm -hmm. And what I knew was that all of the light, whether it was the spacious light or whether it was the compacted light, it was all alive awareness, which is what I was. It was all the same as me. There was no difference. And again, this was all without thinking. That's, that's amazing. It's just knowing. And um, while I was the apple, my daughter took a bite out of me and her teeth were the same thing I am. You know, her teeth were also just this living awareness, compacted light. And so when her teeth came and took a bite out of me, it was an experience of like interacting with like or sameness with sameness or you know and it was a very 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 joyous joyous interaction 
And then after that happened, I popped back into being human, and that's when all of the understanding came. But my point is, in that, in the enlightenment of an apple, right? Because that's a type of an enlightenment, I would say. In the enlightenment of an apple, you could say there's no world. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so is a world something that uh, a human body experiences, but um, the same alive awareness that we are as a blade of grass does not? I mean, you know, I, I, you I think know. there's also another sense in which there's no world. And I think that sense is perhaps best conveyed by the phrase, knowledge is different in different states of consciousness. Or we could say reality is different in different states of consciousness. I mean, you know, even physics will tell us there's a, there's a level of creation in which the world hasn't arisen, hasn't manifested, and that's very real, even yes. perhaps more real than the, than the phases in which the world has apparently manifested. And, uh, you know, whether you go for physics or spiritual teachings, there's all this, there's this notion of levels or strata of creation yeah. more and more and more manifest. And, um, you know, and those levels are paradoxically unlike one another in, in, for the most part. I mean, in physics, Newtonian physics and quantum mechanics have very little to do with one another. Uh, it's a totally different way of explaining the very same creation. And yet both are true, each in their own realm. You know, the, and there's a realm beyond the, both of those realms, which is unmanifest, in which there is no world. Yes. So it's like, and, and if you try to take a stand and say only Newtonian physics is correct and not quantum mechanics or vice versa, or the perspective from which there is no world, then you've boxed yourself into a partial perspective, which is not, which doesn't take into account the totality of all the, the, the various realities simultaneously coexisting. Yeah, now we're getting into the elephant story, right? It's, it's a trunk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I had another experience also that kind of points to, I don't know if you would say that, that this means there is a world or that there isn't a world, but the experience was what I would call the experience of the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. Except, you know, people talk about the Big Bang like it happened, you know, billions of years ago or something. And what I experience is that it's happening, you know, thousands of times per second. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think you know, there are like physicists who would agree with that, that, too. Pardon? I think there are some physicists who would agree with that, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I experienced that as a, you know, I don't, it wasn't, again, it wasn't a vision. It was like an experience. I, I felt it. I saw it. I knew it to be true. Mm -hmm. And I knew that the only reason the world appears exactly the same, I call those multiple universes. I mean, it's like a new universe every nanosecond. Mm -hmm. And the, re the only reason the world is the same in each nanosecond is because our believing stays the same. You know, like if somehow we were able to really, really, you know, change the way that we believe, uh, there's no reason why the next nano universe couldn't be a completely different nano universe because it comes from us. But but that's what I saw is it's always coming, it's always going, uh, it's it's not at all constant. And so in that way, you could definitely say there is no world when you think of a world as something that's constant, right? Yeah. It, it, Right, it's, it con it's changing, and therefore, it's changing. It, and therefore, it can't be real. Um, yeah. But there's a stability to it. Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, creator, maintainer, destroyer. Mm -hmm. the, the, there are these different aspects which kind of counterbalance one another and thereby provide some consistency and continuity to the world. Yeah. 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 So all, all that stuff is, is really cool. But I think that when it comes, when for me, you know, again, maybe this is also what's been helpful to me is that I like to break it down to the simple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
And for me, that stuff is all really cool. But what really matters is uh, where I am now. Yeah. You know, and, and where seeing things like the world coming and going thousands of times per second, where that was helpful to me, is that helped me see, well, then I don't have to carry a grudge. You know, you know, if Rick Archer sat here and said to me, you know, you're the stupidest person I've ever interviewed. No, I've interviewed have, a few, few people who are more stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't have to I don't have to carry a grudge. Cause, I mean, as soon as as soon as you're done saying that, it's that was a different universe. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Have, there's no reason. I don't have to drag that into this universe. So that's how these types of experiences have been helpful to me. So to me, it's not the experience for the experience's sake. It's the experience for how the experience shifted me, how the experience is helping me see things that I didn't see before and therefore um, awakening me. That's great. And that's a nice example of living in the now, of course, which is very all, the vo all in vogue and ever since Eckhart Tolle popularized it. It's like the now of 10 seconds ago is not not the now of now <laughs> yeah yeah and and there's actually all kinds of beautiful teaching stories about this kind of thing about like i've used this example before but um it etching a line in stone versus drawing a line in sand versus making a line in water versus making a line in air you know in, in each case the line um you know, it gets less and less uh, permanent and according to the, the substance in which you make it. And, uh, you know, it's said that the enlightened person is like line in air. They just, everything is deeply experienced. You can actually make a deeper line in air than you can in stone, but it's, it's, it's passed as soon as it's passed, you know, next moment, yeah. next moment, new thing. And that gets very, very easy too. There's something about, it's like the past and the future collapse. Yeah, yeah. You know, like you, like you don't have to, make yourself stay in the now. Right. It just, it just it just becomes a natural way of being. Yeah. Good point. I mean if it would be a strain to be trying to make yourself stay in the now all the time. Yeah, it's just that it's just the past is falling away and the future, you know, uh, the future imagine the stories about the future, the imagination about the future, that's what's gone. Yeah. So um, uh, So you told us some of the key points of the inner Ramana book. Um, did you managed to cover the key points of the NTI book? Anything in there uh, that you want people to know about? No, I think that um, I think that NTI is uh, it's an er for me it was an earlier it was a phase earlier phase yeah. yeah and it's really about you know when I started NTI I still firmly believed that if you said I was the you know the stupidest person you ever interviewed you hurt me you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You did that to me, and yeah. how could you? And 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 the world is real, and 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 you know I hurt because of you. Yeah. And uh, and NTI is what moved me from that way into seeing that it really is about my thinking and what I'm believing and teaching me how to let go of thoughts. So, uh, and it also one thing that NTI also teaches is about emotions, how to be with emotions until they die their own death. Yeah rather than repressing them. Just, you know, whether it's fear, guilt, anger, just, you know, letting it exist until it ceases to exist on its own, because it will, and staying out of the way. So it's really that phase. I call it the purification phase, but it's really that phase of the awakening process. And what's interesting, I mean, I've, I've listened to some of your interviews, and what I find interesting is, of course, some people seem to have the awakening to, um, you know, to, to the self behind the self, before they go through the purification. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was the opposite. The purification came first. And I'll hear a lot of people who, you know, who say that they are awake. And they say, but, you know, 
you know, they still have all this stuff. They still get angry. They still judge. They still, and actually, I, I don't have all of that stuff. Because you so cleared, I know, cleared it out largely. You don't have to live with that, and right. I know that. So, uh, so that's you know, that's just to accept that as this is the way it is 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 just not continuing that that hike. I think yeah. um, there's no reason you don't have to. Uh, it's not and not in a repression way. You know, what I'm, about, what I'm about to say, I don't mean to encourage repression, but you don't have to experience hate and jealousy and guilt. And, you know, you, you have you can see through it. You can see how you make it. You can see it's not real. You can transcend it. And then you're a happy person. And yes, stuff still happens, but you're able to happily and with intuition, manage it, deal with it. Sure. Um, I just want to say we, there have been. Yeah, there's about 170 people watching the live stream and we've only gotten one question so it may be that people don't realize that they can submit questions so if anyone wants to submit one we, we might go on for another 10 or 15 minutes and um, there's a page on batgap.com under the upcoming interviews menu and um, or future interviews or something go go there and then at the upcoming interviews then at the bottom of that page there's a form through which you can submit a question if you have one um, okay so then Awakening together. What is that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's a good question. Um, so the reason I moved to Pueblo, by the way, is I uh, it's a short story. I had a dream that told me to go to Pueblo. <laughs> <laughs> so I left North Carolina and I came to Pueblo. And sh shortly after I got to Pueblo, within a couple years of getting to Pueblo, uh, I had this feeling to take what I called a year of increased silence. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, being a, a single mother, I couldn't have complete silence. You know, I had a daughter who, who I needed to be a mother to, but she was in school during the day um, from about seven in the morning till four in the afternoon. And so I was in silence during that time. And I spent that time uh, with a book called The Seven Steps to Awakening, which is actually just a collection of quotes from people like Ramana Maharshi, Nizar Gadada, Yoga Vasista, the book, um, you know, et cetera, things like that. And I would spend all day contemplating uh, these quotes and, and, you know, lots of great, great, great clarity came. And, you know, again, this was another giant step forward and, and um, I could do lots of teachings on what came to me in that year. But at the end of that year, um, this guidance came, <laughs> this guidance came to start a, a church, an online church. And I had great, great resistance. In fact, the first two people that I told that to, I couldn't even hardly get the word church out of my mouth. Um, but the guidance came to start this online church, Awakening Together. I was given uh, a purpose and five core values, uh, the purpose being uh, to awaken to one true self, but using any form of spiritual teaching that's helpful. So not specific to one mode, you know, like we talked about, different people need different things. So it's not specific to just one mode of awakening. Whatever is helpful to point people towards awakening, that's a part of awakening together. And then the five core values were things like uh, no one has spiritual intuition over another. Uh, you know, everyone has their own inner guidance. Uh, again, not to make anything that is not the truth is not the truth. So, for example, to hold up NTI or A Course in Miracles or anything else and say, this is the truth. You know, that's not it. That's just a pointer. Uh, uh, there is only one truth, and it's, you know, that which has no beginning, no ending, is absolutely changeless. I um, mean, you know, all of these core values came. And so uh, then our job, I, I got two friends in on, to help me with this. Our job was to build this church. And 
uh, a church is a, a legal entity. And, and so we needed to study the law and we needed to learn what a church was and we needed to become a church in the eyes of the law. And uh, we did that. It was it was quite a climb because the law, at least the IRS, thought that a church meant physical building mm -hmm. and we're online. Right. And so we had to work a little harder to prove that we were a church than, you know, than an on than somebody with a building would. But we did. We got our church status. So we are an online church. And, uh, and in some ways, we behave like a church, because if we didn't behave like a church, they wouldn't see us as a church, right? So like we have a Sunday morning service. Uh, we have a minister program where you can become ordained as a minister. But all of that, I would say, is actually window dressing. Uh, the real purpose of this organization is to help people awaken, to help people uh, find their own inner intuition that's going to guide them through their awakening, to help people get beyond the symbols and to see what the symbols are pointing to. It's also just wonderful. It's a wonderful way for people to join. Lots of people feel that they're alone in their communities and, you know, any, we're online. So, you know, you can come together and, and join with others. Um, so it's it's really a pretty cool thing. It's still relatively small. I think we have a little over 200 members, mm -hmm. um, but uh, it's it's really just a very cool thing. And you know, if, if you go to our website and you go to and our website is awakening-together.org, and you go to the sanctuary menu, there you'll you can get a, a quick start book that tells you how to enter our sanctuary. And you can literally come into our online sanctuary where, you know, we'll, we'll have we have speakers, uh, but also if the speaker is taking questions, you can put up your hand and you can ask, you know, ask a question. You can type questions on the board and, you know, um, this is we like have, the Sunday morning services. You have speakers like well, that. But we're open all day Sunday. We're open Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday, all day Wednesday, and we're open Thursday night. So more than just a Sunday morning service. In fact, Gina Lake is one of the speakers mm -hmm. uh, in our sanctuary. She speaks on Wednesdays uh, oh, nice. just before me. Every week. Uh, uh, pardon? Every week. Yeah, every week. Yeah. Every week. And I, then we I have, interviewed Gina years ago. She's a good friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah I love her too. I love her too. Yeah. And then. And then we have different people that we invite to come for uh, like a mini series. Like they wouldn't want to come every week like Gina does, mm -hmm. but they might come for four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks in a row. Who's some uh, people you have scheduled? Uh, we have Martha Creek scheduled in January, mm -hmm. Suzanne Marie scheduled in mm -hmm. February, uh, Maria Felipe scheduled in March, and then I haven't gotten to April yet. I'll okay. be working on that next. Nice. So, and then we have monthly satsangs on the third Sunday of every month. We invite somebody different uh, for a one-time thing to interview. We had, I think it was Locke Kelly mm -hmm. last month. I think you gave me his email address because mm -hmm. I was having trouble reaching him. Uh, we have Kate Greaves this month. Next month we have um, Mary Reed. You know, so just sure. and all these things. Also, mm -hmm. the audios are on our website so people can go and listen to the audios. But you can come into our sanctuary and participate live um, in these types of events. And then we also have uh, a, a radio station, an internet broadcast that's on 24 seven. So even when our when our sanctuary is open, the sanctuary is being broadcast. How do you, when, how do you keep that full of content 24 um, seven? I, I 
it's all you it's all a YouTube playlist and I mm. add add YouTubes every morning. I see. Uh, so I, I go on so like you know, you can hear Buddha at the gas pump. So they just know, rotate I, through there different just, contents well, that you add. We always delete stuff off the top and add stuff at the bottom, so it's always changing. Cool. And I keep around four to five hundred things in it at a time so mm. that I don't have to be chasing it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we just turn on that YouTube playlist and it's playing through the radio. It has teachings, music, mm. sometimes documentaries, sometimes mm. humor. That's great. And and you know you can get to that from our website too by just going to the sanctuary menu and then clicking on listen live. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a you know and we have annual retreats. Does it cost anything to belong to it? It doesn't cost anything to belong. It's just like any other church. We Voluntary. survive donations. Yeah. yeah. And we do have paid staff. Uh, mm -hmm. I do receive a salary. Uh, Jacqueline Eckert, our vice president, receives a salary. Uh, Ken Gibson, our sanctuary director, receives a salary. And Cheryl Kaplan, our assistant sanctuary director, receives a salary. And then, of course, there's expenses for different servers, you know, different services that you use in that way. So uh, the donations are helpful. It keeps mm -hmm. us going. Without them, we would have to close. Yeah. But no. The only thing that we charge for, obviously, are the retreats because they cost money. Physical, physical location. Physical yeah. retreats, yeah. And also the minister preparation program, which is a two-year program. And it's actually a very good, very helpful program to people. Everybody who goes through it grows spiritually. They mm -hmm. see differently at the end of the program than they did at the beginning. And then you also are an ordained minister, which some people actually just refuse that at the end. They don't care <laughs> about that. It is so it. You know, but but if you want to be a minister at the end, you're an ordained minister at the end. So, so you that, could actually marry people or something if you wanted to, right? You can marry people. You can get into prisons and hospitals more mm -hmm. easily. Yeah, there are different benefits to being a minister if, if someone uh, wanted to be a minister. So, so yeah, the, the, the minister program and the physical retreats cost money, but everything else that we provide, if it's free, you know, everything else that we provide is free. I started to say if it's free for us to do it, but it's not free for us to do right. it because of the paid staff and the servers and all. So, yeah, that sounds yeah. pretty neat. It's a really a cool enterprise. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's a lot of fun. And it just went through a major shift in that uh, originally we were, it was like two organizations came together and did this. And mm -hmm. although both organizations are very sweet, they're, they they really wanted two different things. One organization was very, very focused on A Course in Miracles, and the other organization, uh, which is Awakening Together, much more open. Yeah. And so we just recently kind of had this really nice, friendly split where the organization that's focused on A Course in Miracles is called ACIM Gather. They have their own uh, their own Pal Talk room now, their own virtual room and, and their own radio and all of that. And then Awakening Together has their own. And that just felt really, really good to make that split. So it's kind of a fresh start for us. Uh, we even have open times in our schedules a little bit where we're still looking for some some teachers like Gina Lake, you know, some teachers to come in. So if anybody's hearing this and you're like, ooh, that's for me, you know, be, be sure to, to email me. I think Rick will probably make the email address available. Yeah, I'll... Um Put whatever you want on your Batcat page. Links, yeah. links to all these things you're you're talking about and your your contact info. And, we're um, we're real yeah. excited to grow, and we welcome everyone who feels like they want to be a part of it. That's great. And obviously, you can you know go through my 375 Batgap interviews and pick out people that you yeah you might want to have well, participate and just reach out to them. Um, this is this is where we get a lot of the people for our uh, you know our monthly thought songs or mini series and this is why I don't know if you've noticed but I do send you a, a donation once a year and this is why because I I use you to some degree and if I use you <laughs> I should pay you that's the uh, way well you know. thank you <laughs> yeah and I subscribe to your email actually I've been subscribed to that for years and, okay. <laughs> you know. 
Um, okay, great. So uh, this has been wonderful. Is there, is there anything else that you want to say before, before we wrap it up that, that we haven't said? Uh, no, I think probably the thing that I would want to emphasize is I really do want to invite anybody who wants to join us in Awakening Together to join us. That's, you know, that's how uh, something like that becomes richer mm -hmm. is when people come and they bring their own talents and their own insights and, and all of that. And, and you know, it, it turns into something really very beautiful. So please check out awakening-together.org. And, uh, and join us. And even though I founded it and I'm, you know, a teacher there, it's not the type of thing where uh, I'm the teacher there. Right. Everybody is invited. So. And obviously, um, it's not any sort of binding commitment. You can check it out and try it for a couple of weeks. Right. And if you don't like it, then don't come back. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Absolutely. A couple of questions came in. Let me just quickly scan them. Um, my friend in London, they came in so quickly that he, recently that he hasn't had a chance to review them, but let me just quickly check. Um, let's see. All right, this looks like one I could read. Um, this is from Jennifer, from Jenny in Portola Valley, California. Appreciating this interview much. Uh, thanks both of you for all your helpful work much inspiration and resonant teaching, but I'm still stuck somewhere in habits, thought patterns that keep me in my smaller self. Don't know how I can be more willing and wanting, prayerful. But so far, while progress of some sorts feels constant, it's not setting me free from feeling stuck. Kind mm -hmm. of an ambiguous Hail Mary, I know, but any thoughts on this? Yeah, well, what I, I guess the answer I want to say to that is I am starting something new in January um, because I've observed that, you know, this is true for a, a lot of people <laughs> where they, you know, maybe they've been on this path for a while, they've read all the books, they've been to the, the satsangs, and yet they just feel like there's not a, a, enough movement. You know, maybe there's been yeah. some, but they don't feel like there's enough movement. And, um, you know, and I have walked that path, uh, even though I am still awakening, uh, I have walked that path of letting go of, of what causes us to suffer. And, yeah. and, and so in January, I'm going to start on Tuesday nights uh, leading a, a group of anybody who wants to join where I'm going to do my best to help people let go of um, what's causing them to suffer. And, and I can't tell you 100% exactly how I'm going to do that. It's going to be intuitive. But I'm going to work with people. And... They can join us in the uh, Awakening Together Sanctuary. It will start at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, which is 5 p.m. Pacific, and it will begin on January 10th of 2017, and it will go for as long as it goes. So if somebody happens to watch this two years from now, it's possible that it will still be going on. You know, yeah, so you'll have other things going on, if not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One thing I would say to that person, somebody else asked me that recently out at the SAND conference. I was sitting having breakfast with some friends, and, and she was just feeling like, it's so wonderful to be here with all these people, but now I'm going home, and I'm going to be out in the world and getting caught up in all the usual stuff, and how do I hang on to this you know, nice thing that, I, that gets enlivened when I'm in a group like this? And, and I just kind of said, based on my own experience, that if you have some sort of practice that works for you, that, yes. you, can, that you can make routine, do it every day, once a day, well, twice, twice a day, whatever the nature of the practice is, that will help to really anchor you and, and keep reinforcing so that you just don't get totally caught up in things and forget about, you know. Well, that's the type of thing I'll be doing in this new group. We, we use the term homework, but it's not mm -hmm. studying. I will be giving people things, do this this week, and then come back and tell me how that was for you. you know, so there will be, it won't be just showing up for two hours a week and listening to Regina talk. There's going to be <laughs> interactive discussion. Yeah. 
Uh, there are going to be assignments, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because that's that's how I did it. I mean, I did it by doing something, you know, very in a very focused way, not only every day, but just all the time. Yeah. And um, and I want to I want to help people, the people who really want to heal. And I know not everyone really does. I'm very aware of that. And like I said, there's those mixed priorities. Well, I think everybody wants to. They just may not realize that they want to or they might mistake, you know, other things as potential Sources but, of healing and fulfillment, which actually are going to let them down. But, exactly, yeah. I agree with it. They may need to taste some other things first, or at least see that those other things aren't going to aren't going to do it for them. Yeah. But people who who really, 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 really want this, I, I, you know, I can maybe, you know, point and help and you know give people some practices and and what some people tell me is they they stick to the practices better if they're in a group that's yeah, doing it, it really and they helps. have to come back every week and talk about it right so it's that kind of a collaborative we're doing this together kind of thing yeah there's there's so many so many examples from various scriptures about the importance of a group yeah jesus yes. jesus said where what did he say wherever two or three or more of you are together yes. are gathered together in my name there i am and like the the end of the tenth mandala of the Rig Veda has this whole thing about uh, uh, this assemblage of of enlightened people and how significant that is, and the assembly is significant in unity and so on. And um, and you know so many spiritual teachers have said that you know the company of of fellow of, of enlightened or company of fellow seekers and people with that sort of orientation is such a powerful technique in and of itself for accelerating evolution. So really bears and 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 obviously you're doing it in a really neat online way so that doesn't necessitate so so you know somebody living in northern wyoming can participate with absolutely yeah. and and also we do for people who just absolutely can't make it during that time it'll be recorded and posted too so people in that way could be participating at their convenience so yeah, uh, yeah. i really appreciate that you know some people they they complain a bit when they watch these interviews they say well you know i get a little tired of hearing people um, just describe their experience uh, of their awakening, yes. and and even even if they get, offer something to do, like come to my satsang and hear me describe my experience of my awakening, you know, it's it's not quite as hands-on and practical as as they would like. So yeah, no, I, re- this, I really appreciate the very, effort you're making. Yeah, this is very practical. And remember that first, you know, when I said that prayer on that Disney cruise, what came down over me? I mean, I said it, but it it came to me to say it yeah. was, please make me useful make me for the useful. rest of my life. Yeah. So, you know, somehow I'm still fulfilling that. So this is, you know, this is, you know, kind of my my job, you yeah. know, not until until it's not anymore. I've actually had some feelings lately that it will be ending. And and so this is one reason why I really feel to do into this and to bring this bring as much people to this state that I'm at as possible because when when it ends for me I think awakening together will continue and so it needs to be left with other people who now know this joy this happiness this peace you know and and, and they can turn around and, and share with others great well thanks so, so much for everything you're doing thank you so I've been speaking with Regina Dawn Akers and I'll be putting a page up on batgap.com uh, with you know, description of everything we've been talking about and links to the, the, the things she want us, wants us to link to so you can follow up on all this. And as most of you watching know, this is an ongoing series. There's one every week, so 
Um, if you go to batgap.com, you can sign up to get an email each one each time one is posted, and you'll be notified. Um, you can subscribe on YouTube, and YouTube will notify you whenever I post one. There's an audio podcast if you prefer to listen in audio while commuting or something. The donate button I mentioned in the beginning, we rely upon people's support and appreciate that. And um, some other things, if you explore the menus, you'll find some useful little tools. For instance, there's a geographical thing where if you type in a particular city anywhere in the world, it'll show you in order of the proximity anyone I've interviewed who is doing something in, in those locations. So that's, I believe, under the resources menu. So anyway, um, check out the menus, and thanks for listening or watching, and um, we will see you next week. And thank you, Regina. Thank you, Rick.